I think we need much greater education, particularly for youth who are growing up in an era of social and they don't know anything else. Like you know, we had the benefit of a childhood grounded IRL versus being online for so much of our time. And so a lot of these things are problems we're going to grapple with, mental health, burnout struggles. Welcome back to Evolving, the podcast designed to help you strive, thrive and optimize. Today, I'm here with James Creech, an entrepreneur focused on digital media and technology. James is the Senior Vice President of Strategy at Brandwatch, a platform for consumer intelligence, social media management, and influencer marketing. He was previously the co-founder and CEO of Paladin, which was acquired by Brandwatch in March 2022. He's also the host of the All Things Video podcast, dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of all things online video. James, thanks so much for being with us today. My pleasure, Nita. Thanks for having me. Definitely. So you started your career in ad tech, helping brands and media agencies run paid video campaigns. And you sort of kind of describe the experience of getting hooked to that startup adrenaline rush. How did you first get involved in the nascent creator economy coming from this background in ad tech? Yeah, so I worked at a startup ad tech company called Channel Factory for two and a half years. After that, went on to work at an early creator network called Bent Pixels. So this was in the midst of the uh, YouTube gold rush where creators were eagerly launching their careers and building their empires and a number of early business models jumped in to support them. And so it was a fun space to be a part of. It evolved and grew rapidly. Uh, but that was my entree into the creator economy before that term had really been coined or, or used frequently. But at the time, we were focused on helping these emerging creators on platforms like YouTube and later on Instagram and Vine and et cetera to grow their brands, right? Attract more followers and work with brand advertisers. And at the time, we were doing it incredibly manually, right? All by hand, finding the influencers, managing those relationships, running campaigns, reporting back to an advertiser and how it performed. So out of necessity, we started building some software to make it a little bit easier. And that was the genesis of Paladin. I love that. And you recently described that every leader should be a creator because in your personal experience, creating helped make you more of a strategic thinker, a thoughtful listener, and a capable communicator, to borrow your own words. Why is it necessary for leaders and people who are inhabiting these high-level positions to also have the experience of creating? What is it that we gain from going through that? Yeah. There's a lot here, right? The first part is the fact that we live in a populist era in which people trust individuals more than they do brands or institutions, right? And that's changed significantly, right? My grandfather worked for the same company for over 30 years. Um, at the time, the 50s and 60s, people put their trust in institutions like that company, IBM or NASA, right? Government programs, et cetera. Then we kind of moved into an era that glorified corporate hegemony, right? So we think about like, um, Jack Welsh in the GE era of conglomerates and, you know, the corporation was was king. People have gotten disillusioned with that. We see it in entrepreneurship, right? This explosion and people starting their own companies. Also in the success stories and the type of people we glorify, we think more about Jeff Bezos than we do Amazon or Elon Musk rather than Tesla or Twitter or SpaceX, right? So we, we use these names in the same breath to kind of represent the company or the brands that they stand for. The same is true in politics, right? We've seen AOC and Bernie Sanders, just as much as we've seen Donald Trump or um, Ron DeSantis, who have embodied this idea of the individual, right? And at the same time, creator platforms, which originally meant social networks that became social platforms that have now become these creator platforms, have democratized access to the tools of creation. So whereas before, you know, there were gatekeepers as to who had a book deal or who had a successful talk radio show or a TV program or a film project, 
all of that is gone, right? It's not made by a small group of individuals discerning what the public taste is anymore. Anyone can create a podcast or start a, a Twitch stream or a YouTube channel or TikTok account. So that's incredibly powerful, right? That we're living in this era of creative expression and freedom. But it also means that the expectation has changed. I don't know about you, but I personally listen to probably more creator content than I do traditional entertainment anymore. And our expectation of business leaders and thought leaders is for them to be public intellectuals, right? It's not enough to sit in an ivory tower and think about what you want to do. It's the best ideas are shared and tested in public and you get real-time feedback and that's how you improve. So that's my preamble. I'm happy to share a little bit about my experience being a creator as well, because, you know, admittedly, I, I kind of came to it reluctantly, but I think that maybe gives, provides the context for why we're living in an era in which creators are so important. Definitely. That kind of reminds me of that concept that discovery is meaningless unless disseminated. And I think a lot of people in STEM fields are increasingly seeing the need for this more and more. And sometimes I've heard people who do work in science or the life sciences-based academia talk about how the incentives need to be aligned for dissemination to be more of a priority. Because a lot of the time in a professor's contract, it's not necessarily stated that science communication responsibilities are part of the things that a person needs to do as per the terms of their contract. So sometimes it's a matter of like incentives aligning to get that to be more widely adopted. But I do think that there is a lot of potential for science communication just in terms of not just having the public be more involved, but as far as acquiring funding, it's necessary to communicate the importance of what you're doing to the public in order to get people on board and support your mission as well. And I guess this is also speaking to the rise of the build in public movement. And what do you think about the advantages of that versus mm-hmm. operating in stealth or just kind of yeah. working on something without having anyone know what it is that you're working on? Well, first of all, I love the fact that you're encouraging your audience to pursue careers in STEM fields and that those who are, are thinking about, you know, should I be a communicator about the work that I do? It's so easy to get dismayed by these reports and studies that come out every year. Oh, what do kids want to be when they grow up? And, you know, when you and I were young, it was probably a lawyer, a doctor, a firefighter, a policeman. But that has changed. And a lot of people are now saying, well, I want to be a YouTube star. I want to be an influencer, right? And people roll their eyes. But I think what has changed is the fact that we don't look up to traditional celebrities so much anymore. We feel this parasocial bond, this kind of relationship with an influencer whose content I follow regularly. And a creator can be a multi-hyphenate, right? So you can be a doctor or nurse and a creator, right? You could be an engineer and a TikTok educator, right? So I, I think that's what we'll see attitudes start to shift, that creator isn't necessarily your whole identity, but it's an important part of your identity. And how does that relate to build in public? It's a fascinating movement, right? As someone who's been in and around entrepreneurship now for over a decade, look, there's certainly times when competitive advantage dictates that you want to keep things secret and build in stealth. But my hat is off to those who are public and transparent with their metrics. It's not right for every business, but for those that can do it, it's a really exciting way to share milestones and kind of have the community believe and and get on board with your success. There's an example I've been tracking recently that's not a perfect build in public example, but I love what the gas app founder Nikita has been doing on Twitter, where he's sharing these, you know, traction milestones. The app just premiered in August, but is already, you know, it's been number one in the app store. They've reached, you know, really impressive you know, MAU count, they're monetizing out of the gate with, you know, real revenue this year. It's amazing to see those stats being shared and using platforms like LinkedIn or Twitter or Substack to um, share your journey, right? Because so much of entrepreneurship is, can you take those lessons and pass them on to other people who are similarly trying to solve for, for the problems that you're tackling? 
I love that. And I feel that one thing that we've probably seen within our lifetimes is the shift of social media from something that was used for connection to something that's used for broadcasting. Like the purpose of it has completely shifted. And I feel like, you know, your reference to parasocial bonds, that has a lot of psychological implications as well, because, you know, creators like Emma Chamberlain, they their entire model is kind of based on having this personal relationship with the viewer. It's not content-based, it's relationship-based in the way that you would watch Emma Chamberlain do anything because it's Emma. And then for a lot of other channels, you kind of tune in because of the content they provide, because of the topics that they cover, because they have something of interest to you, maybe for your job, yeah. maybe you have just kind of hobbies that you follow in common. But for Emma, it's basically you watch her just because she's Emma. But I feel like there's also these pitfalls of these parasocial bonds because they're perhaps creating this distorted view of reality. And like this kind of tying into your mention of gas, which is this app where people leave these anonymous compliments or like these anonymous messages for people. I mean, I feel like this is kind of an issue regardless of what the platform is, just because parasocial bonds are something that you could observe anywhere online nowadays. But what do you think it means for mental health implications, this idea that the person that we see online is an actual representation of them? Because, you know, arguably what you see online is a small fraction of what a person's day and identity is actually like. And do you think that could be misleading in a way and give people a version of reality that doesn't actually exist? Completely. And this is absolutely true. We know there are some YouTubers or other creators that embody a personality when they're in front of the camera. And that might be fundamentally different from who they are in you know, their, their normal day-to-day -day life. You have characters like Amanda Sings, right? I know this is the case of PewDiePie. He's extremely extroverted on his game streams. People talk about how in real life, you know, Felix is very introverted. I've met a handful of creators over the years, and some of them are in stark contrast to their internet persona, so to speak. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, one of the amazing things about this technology and social media is you have this freedom and creative expression. And if you only want to vocalize one part of your identity or a version of yourself online, that's okay. But to your point, we are still living in the early innings of this in our society and the impact that it's going to have. I think we need much greater education, right? Particularly for youth who are growing up in an era of social and they don't know anything else. Like you know, we had the benefit of childhood grounded IRL versus being online for so much of our time. And so a lot of these things are problems we're going to grapple with, mental health, burnout struggles for creators, certainly. I mean, the algorithms keep people on a treadmill and encourage them to post really frequently, but also for fans who feel a sense of closeness and connection to a creator who they've maybe never actually met in real life. And so the bond is experienced differently by the two people in that relationship. Definitely. And I feel like, especially like you're saying, people who've kind of grown up on this technology, it's their only kind of segue into relationships sometimes. Sometimes like the very first relationships you're forming, with the exception of your immediate family, could be these parasocial bonds that you're making online. I mean, it's, it's challenging. Technology on its face is, for the most part, amoral, right? It doesn't take a stand, good or bad, positive or negative, and yet it can be used in incredibly beautiful, positive, connecting ways. It can also be abused for great evil or problems online. And so it's up to us as a community to design the appropriate safeguards to hold these platforms to account, hold the individuals and, and conversations on these platforms to account, but they're going to reflect the human beings that are on them, right? So 
we can do our best to control the conversations and educate people around what happens. But there are going to be amazing things and there's going to be challenging things we have to learn how to deal with with both. I think that's a profound point there that social media is a tool and it can be used for nefarious or beneficial purposes. But it also brings up this question, like, how much is it a responsibility of these platforms to mediate and prevent things like cyberbullying, to prevent things like teen suicide potentially? And how much does the burden fall on parents to kind of be educated about these risks and protect their children and to have that cybersecurity knowledge? I think it also calls into question matters of censorship because a lot of people support this idea of freedom of speech online, but speech also has consequences and hate speech in particular has consequences. And at least for me personally, where I would draw the line is I don't think hate speech should be tolerated on a platform because when you look at all the atrocities in the world, instances of genocide, kind of how the anti-Semitic rhetoric lately has been potentially triggering attacks on Jewish synagogues, that has real life consequences. So I feel like that intersection of speech and human behavior, that's very manifold. And I feel like that's kind of difficult to piece apart. But where does change start? Does it start in our communities? Does it start with regulation of these platforms? What's the way forward for keeping our kids and our community safe online? I think the answer is all of the above and not to give you a cop-out answer, but yeah, parents have a responsibility. We have to vote. We have to act, right? It's too often the case in politics that we have an older population that governs us and they maybe did not grow up with these technologies. So we need experts. We need people to vote and inform the political stakeholders on what needs to be done. The question of where should content moderation fall in the tech stack, right, is a good one and something we should be thinking about. I mean, certainly there should be accountability at the individual poster level. So um, efforts to combat anonymous content and have real life identity and verification of posts can help create a more healthy standard and safeguard. There's also an argument, at least today in the setup currently exists, that social platforms should bear some responsibility, right? They like to hide behind DMCA and um, claim that, you know, they're just enabling this content to exist on their platform. They don't have an editorial concern over it. But the way that these businesses have evolved and the amount of money they make as a result of kind of gatekeeping the supply and demand of advertising and consumer attention would lead to, you know, suggest to me that we need to rethink some of those older models. And then there's pipes and tech infrastructure, you know, things like AWS and others who have been weighing conversations about do we kick entire apps off the platform if they don't have effective content moderation policies. Like that's what happened to Parler and other, you know, some of these extreme or right-wing echo chambers. So we need efforts in all of those places, right? And it's kind of up to all of us to define what is acceptable. I think one of the lowest hanging fruit, right? Like what are the easy solves here? We have existing legal frameworks that we apply to determine is something hate speech, right? Is something allowed in another forum, right? Not necessarily online, but you know, we have existing case law and practices that we apply to other instances. Why not replicate those frameworks online? Why can't we apply them to social media and creator platforms? That seems to me like a good place to start. I really like the fact that you mentioned the dangers of echo chambers, because I feel like that can create these very siloed compartments of thinking, which kind of sometimes prevents us from acknowledging the humanity of people across the aisle, people who might have a different belief system or a different religion or are 
different to us in some way with the advent of so many different platforms to disseminate information, you're seeing the globalization of information essentially. And you mm -hmm. talked a little bit about this in the way that the creator economy is a global phenomenon. The fastest growing creator platform is Chinese. The most subscribed YouTube channel is from India. For those who are wondering, that's T-Series, which has 229 million subscribers as of November 2022. And Mr. Beast, he's the most subscribed individual user on the platform with 112 million subscribers and the fourth most subscribed channel overall. And of course, the most subscribed TikTok creator is from Senegal. What do you think it means that we have such a global creator economy now? How is that shifting the narrative? How is that shifting the landscape? Yeah. Well, on the one hand, it's incredibly exciting and empowering, right? That um, we have this globalization of content and consumption, right? It's happening in traditional media too. We had Parasite win Best Picture at the Oscars. We've had Squid Games become the most popular show on Netflix. And so it's amazing to see that one country, and particularly in the past, it's been America dominating cultural exports and determining culture across the globe. Now we have you know, more diversity and we're able to enjoy content from many different regions, cultures, and languages. And there's incredible technology and innovation that's happening in that space. It's great for creators, right? Because you can grow up in a small town or a small village and you have access to the world's resources and creative information, but you also have the tools and capability to share your thoughts, right? You talked a little bit earlier about, you know, these platforms being great broadcast mechanisms. That's true. And I think we will continue to have broadcast creator platforms, but we're also seeing the emergence of you know, private communities, whether that's Discord or Geneva Mighty Networks, right? These ways to kind of express interest in, in these subcultures or niche communities. You've got private messaging apps like Telegram, WhatsApp, and others that are useful for sharing close in information with close family and friends. So social has fragmented the entertainment landscape, given opportunity to people everywhere. And that's one of the most exciting things about, you know, being in this space and continuing to work and see incredible innovation in the creator economy. I really like that mention of the democratization of the economy, just in the way that there is so much more opportunity and you're not as limited by geography anymore. And even if you're growing up in a small town in a remote village, you still have the opportunity to have your voice heard by people all across the world, which I think is really empowering. Kind of going back to your mention of communities like Discord and Geneva, what do you think the way forward is for creators in general. Do you think that these sorts of communities are going to become the dominant form by which creators interact with their audience? Or do you think that subscription-based revenue models are going to take center stage the way that the newsletter platform Substack and membership platforms like Patreon and Memberful do? And now even Apple Podcasts has a subscription-based model. Where are we going in terms of the tools that creators are likely to leverage is it going to be more of this subscription-based model? Is it going to kind of turn over to more blockchain applications like minting NFTs? Are we going to see the rise of more private communities? What do you envision happening? Great question. I think it's helpful to think of this in context, right? So when the internet grew up, it was designed as a free resource, right? So connect people and information. And so the initial business model that made sense for the internet was advertising, right? If you can aggregate a large volume of audience, then you can sell ads against that content. And that was kind of the most effective way to initially turn on the revenue streams. Over time, right, we've seen this uh, growth of subscription businesses. And so our buying habits have led to greater adoption of subscription. And that has carried over into the creator economy. So you mentioned, you know, patronage or membership sites like Patreon. 
but you also have subscription offerings from the platforms themselves, Instagram and others. And then we've got transactions, right? So e-commerce, shoppable commerce is one of the dominant forms of creator monetization in China and other parts of Southeast Asia, the East. It's not as prevalent here in the West. And you know, maybe that will change. Hopefully it will, right? People have been kind of looking at China as a leading indicator for years, and we haven't quite gotten up to the expectations here in North America or Western Europe, but it certainly seems like the opportunity is significant. And so we'll see more of that over time. For creators, I think the biggest thing at this point, living in a Web2 era is social platforms are a great way to build audience. They're not always the best way to own that relationship with a fan or to monetize that person most effectively. At the end of the day, YouTube owns your subscribers, Instagram, TikTok on your followers, et cetera. So that's why people are looking at alternatives and why certain solutions are emerging that are open alternatives. So the fan relationship belongs to the creator. And we're kind of in this web 2.5 era, right? Maybe in a migration to web three in which uh, we'll have more of an ownership economy. Creators can launch projects. That sense of direct connection and ownership not only exists for the creators, but also can be shared with the fans. That's the really exciting potential of web three. There's amazing progress and companies and things being built. It's still very early, but that's where there's enormous potential for this space in the future. What do you think about Twitter's future? Just because mm -hmm. I know this is something that everyone is wondering about now, especially with the recent tech layoffs and the rumors that potentially the company's running on a skeleton crew. Do you think that the platform will survive for one? And second of all, if it does, what is it going to look like going forward? That is the million dollar question these days, right? I'll give a disclaimer up front that these are my views, right? Not that of my employer or anyone else, but uh, Twitter is a fascinating use case into what the future could be for social and for big tech, right? In general, I think Elon, when he you know, proposed the acquisition, had a thesis that big tech is not running these businesses as effectively as they could. That means a bit of a different thing for each company, right? So, you know, with Meta, there was a open letter from a shareholder, Brad Gerstner, to Zuckerberg and the rest of the board saying, A, the macroeconomic conditions have changed. B, you're making a big bet on the future of the business in the metaverse. And that needs to be tied to a realistic understanding of the core business and its future going forward. You know, with Google, they have their moonshot projects. And I think, you know, their overall spending on those big bets is pretty modest compared to, you know, the success of the business. And then with Twitter... They've made a number of acquisitions over the years. A number of those have not necessarily been successfully integrated. So maybe there's some learnings there. I think the overall argument is that big tech may have gotten a bit bloated, right? And so can these businesses be run more efficiently? Should they be run more efficiently, return more capital to shareholders? That argument is driven by the fact that, you know, potentially these are maturing businesses. And so when you shift from a growth stage to a mature or sustaining phase, then your priorities and your financial discipline need to change as a result. The other piece is that the level at which people at these companies are paid may be higher than the value always delivered. Some people have argued that or that there's too many people working on projects and you could accomplish the same or similar results with a smaller staff. And there's been people postulating that, well, you know, maybe this was designed to stifle innovation, right? Rather than allowing a startup to emerge that could disrupt one of these incumbents, they would acquire companies and try and bring that innovation in-house rather than allowing them to compete and build the next Google, Facebook, Twitter, et cetera. So there's a lot there, right? I think, will Twitter succeed? It certainly still can, right? It has the opportunity a lot. I think it's the broad narrative in the press that, you know, oh, this is crazy. And all of these things are putting Twitter in jeopardy. 
could very well be true, right? I mean, there's certain, when you do any sort of broad change very quickly, you risk getting things wrong and making mistakes. But, you know, I think Elon recognized that he has a different vision for Twitter. He's going to act boldly. There's an interesting asset there, but to, you know, harness the potential that he thinks there is, then, you know, he wants to shape it and do it in a different direction. I wouldn't bet against him, right? He's certainly been successful in other areas in the past. So uh, I'm still an eager follower of what's going on at Twitter. And I'm excited to see what they do because I don't think the answer is foretold yet. I think it's still playing out in real time and it's exciting to see what happens. Definitely. I guess it's kind of like a watch and wait approach that we're all kind of employing right now. But I have seen a lot of people kind of moving to, well, the blockchain equivalent of Twitter, which is called Mastodon, but there's also others that are built on blockchain that have a similar social media equivalent like BitCloud, Steemit, Odyssey. What do you think about the potential for these blockchain social media platforms to capture yeah. some audience. Do you see NFTs as a viable monetization strategy for creators? Or do you think that it's too early that this isn't something that's widely adopted enough or maybe NFTs are a bit of a fad and they'll kind of fade away in a while? How do you see that playing out in the blockchain creator space? Blockchain networks will work. I think it's early, but we'll absolutely, there's potential for the next big social platform to be built on blockchain. Giving creators, fans, audiences a chance to monetize or have ownership is fantastic. We're probably still a ways out, I think, until the idea of a digital wallet and that being tied to your identity online becomes a bit more ubiquitous. We're still charting that course for the future. Uh, as to your questions about NFTs and monetization potential, Absolutely. I think NFTs are really exciting. They really need to be tied to utility. So can that deliver value online and or offline? Great. They're probably due for a rebranding, right? And this is something that happens from time to time. We have crypto and then we have Web3 and we have metaverse and then, it, you know, these terms evolve. So NFTs is a bit clunky and we might move to something like digital collectibles or something that's a little bit more intuitive for folks in the future. Everyone's excited about Taylor Swift selling out and Ticketmaster issues, but what if you could get a digital collectible that signaled you were a Taylor super fan and that you attended this concert and maybe that has nostalgia value, maybe that serves as your entry, that becomes your ticket into the event, that becomes a way for you to re-watch a digital stream of it afterwards. So not only do you see you are there at the, the physical concert, but you can watch the video back anytime you want. Maybe at a certain point, you want to sell that NFT to another Taylor super fan. And, you know, that's going to count towards future concert pre-sales or a rank of Taylor's, you know, super followers on Spotify and other platforms. So it could be a way to benchmark fan engagement and deliver really unique, valuable experiences to super fans. It's a neat idea that of allowing NFTs to essentially provide more access to a person. Because I feel at the end of the day, you are kind of selling access when it comes to personal brands. People like Pat Flynn included, he has this super fan strategy that he talks about pretty frequently. And I guess NFTs maybe have the potential to change what it means to be a super fan. Maybe it's like holding this pass. Maybe it's saying, I have access to everything that this creator has ever done. Exactly. I think that's the most exciting opportunity for NFTs is to strengthen that relationship, the bond between creator and fan. Love that. What are your thoughts around the future of blockchain in general? Do you think that Ethereum will be the last man standing when all is said <laughs> and done? I'm far from an expert here. I am um, a believer. I uh, certainly like to buy and hold some of the exciting crypto projects. I probably am not a good person to opine on 
uh, which blockchain or which tokens will be useful in the future. But I think what Ethereum is doing is fascinating. And, you know, I continue to be a believer in the projects built on top of it. Makes sense. What do you think about the future of video in general? Because one interesting statistic is that most people who listen to podcasts, they do so on YouTube, which is, of course, a video platform, a video first platform. And they captured this large share of the market without even trying. Like this was before they rolled out that beta version of the podcast page, which I think is still limited to the United States. But Correct. What does it mean to be a podcaster these days? Do you have to be doing video as well in order to make it? And is there something that's lost in terms of the authenticity that comes across or just the feel or kind of the aesthetic of an audio format? So I started my podcast career in 2015, right? I launched All Things Video as an outlet to connect with other entrepreneurs and learn from them, share their stories. This was at a time before podcasting had become so prevalent. So I had to figure out how do I record a show, edit it, get it hosted, distributed on platforms, right? And this was before really easy, amazing free solutions like Anchor and, and other tools came along. Thankfully, it's much more ubiquitous and accessible today. But I was resistant early on to do video. I thought, oh, it's going to be so much more work and is really valuable. Who's going to watch the video? I finally caved. Part of that was like a creative decision. I thought the video was interesting. I used to interview everyone in person. And so it was a great way to, you know, read the facial expressions, body language, the cues, the tone, that's harder to do when it's only a phone call. So if I would do interviews remotely, I would do them over Zoom or something else where I could actually see the person and that was a, a good enough substitute. Then I thought, oh, well, you know, it's interesting to kind of see the person and relate to them. And not everyone's going to choose to watch the video. They might, you know, throw it up and then they're kind of tuning out or they're doing other things, but it's helpful to have both. Selfishly, it's also a bit easier to just do a video podcast and then not edit it. I used to do kind of pretty intensive editing. So it made my life easier from that standpoint too. But I think the video conveys so much more and there's really interesting things you could do. Like some of the podcasts I listen to will reference materials, charts, graphs, studies, you know, imagery. And so being able to kind of cut that into the podcast is really helpful. But I'm excited. Like podcasting is still super early. More and more people are using it as a way to kind of learn or be entertained. And it doesn't surprise me that, you know, YouTube has been so successful there, perhaps even without trying because, you know, video podcasts are a pretty engaging way to get the full experience. Definitely. How do you think that this is going to maybe impact indie podcasters? Because, you know, a lot of podcasters are do-it-yourselfers. They host the show, they produce the show, they edit the show, they write the scripts, and they're just like machines, essentially. Do you think that having to include video as well would be discouraging for some people? And do you think that there's an argument for respecting the art form and staying true to its audio first origins? Or is this just something that we're going to have to get used to because this is the new normal? I would say you do not have to do video, right? If you are more comfortable with audio only, more power to you, right? It's not going to change. And I tell everyone who's making a creative decision or choosing their future as a creator, do the things that you enjoy, right? Don't do something that if you're not into it, don't create content for a platform you don't want to be on or your audience isn't there. Don't um, try to force yourself into using a format that you're not comfortable with. For instance, I write a lot on LinkedIn and the format I like the most is just sharing my thoughts in text. And occasionally I'll share an image or, you know, maybe a uh, link to an article or something else. But for the most part, like that's the powerful way I can connect with that community. So that's what I do, right? Like maybe video would be more favored by the algorithm or a lot of people take selfies and share photos. And, you know, part of me is like, well, LinkedIn's not Facebook. I don't want to use it that way. And 
part of me is um, like, this is the type of content I like to share and this is how I choose to use it. So that would be my first thing is, you know, for any creative professional out there, do it for you. Don't try to do it for anyone else because it's too much work to try and satisfy other people. The other thing is, you know, as it relates to video, it doesn't have to be perfect, right? Like when I started my podcast, I was nervous, I was embarrassed. It was not great. Audio quality was poor. It got better over time. The key thing is just to do it. It might seem really daunting to start with video initially, but give it a shot. If it doesn't work, you tried. If it's bad, who cares, right? Like the whole thing about the creator economy is it's authentic. It doesn't have to be this beautiful, polished Hollywood commercial. It can be you talking to someone like this, and that's totally fine. And then the last thing is, you know, video will evolve, right? Like I think the reason it's become so dominant is it is a really engaging way to share and consume content. It also, you know, monetizes very effectively. So for the platforms, they are leaning into video aggressively. I mean, that's why you see what TikTok has piloted with its short form looping video format is now being copied by YouTube Shorts and Instagram, Facebook Reels and Spotlight on Snapchat and everything else. Like video, especially short form video, is the dominant battleground for social. And so it's a good idea to, to think about doing video if you haven't done it yet. It's interesting that you talk about LinkedIn not being Facebook, but at the same time, these platforms, sometimes it feels like they're kind of going through a little bit of an identity crisis because everyone's kind of trying to be each other. Like you're saying with with Instagram and YouTube emulating TikTok because of that short form video craze. That's essentially the way that Gen Z consumes most of its content nowadays. I also like the mention of authenticity being the most important thing and the fact that the landscape's evolving. But going back to our consumption of material, do younger generations have shorter time spans as a result of the way that they consume the majority of their information? And does this have implications for what the workforce will look like in the future in terms of how we perform research and also just the way that we share information. Is the structure of team meetings maybe going to change? Are we going to be moving to more asynchronous communication because of the way younger generations communicate with one another? And also what's up with emojis? Because I feel like no one can really figure this out. There seems to be this generational divide where like if you use a smiley face emoji, but you're over the age of 30, it's just, it means what it means. It just means you're happy about something. But apparently if you're a Gen Zer, it's like condescending. So how do you also kind of bridge these generational divides so that there's not some miscommunication yeah. or things lost in translation? Look, I'm not a clinical psychologist or researcher, so I, I can't necessarily comment per se on are people's attention spans getting shorter. I can comment on my experience and my media diet, right? The speed of information has sped up significantly since the time I was a kid to now, right? So we expect to, you know, be able to answer any question at any time. And I think that the immediacy of digital content has led to that in our entertainment preferences, right? Like we want to watch on-demand video on Netflix rather than, you know, being stuck with commercials and live broadcast. It comes into our work habits, right? We use Slack to get, you know, immediate hold of our colleagues rather than wait for an email. So yes, I think the appetite for information consumption has dramatically increased. And a large part of that is driven by these technical innovations that are driving cultural change, at least, you know, in my experience. At least in science, there is this concern that so much dopamine or like so many instances of dopamine hits are kind of addictive in a potentially mm -hmm. detrimental way, just because it's the sort of thing where you build up a tolerance and you just need more and more engagement to kind of feel that same stimulation. And I guess now we see the term dopamine detox coming up and people kind of trying to take breaks from social media. And I think burnout is becoming really common. Like you mentioned, 
how do you maintain For your sure. sanity in like this noisy world in which we're living? Well, we are social creatures. I think it is natural to seek the approval of others, whether that's, you know, in real life, your relationships, your connections, or in digital platforms. That's why, you know, these algorithms have been designed to prioritize engagement and common activity, because that's what drives monetization potential for these platforms whose business models built around advertising, right? So understand the game and how it's played. And that helps you put it in context. For us as individuals, you have to set the rules. Don't let the platform set the rules. So choose how you want to interact with these things, set clear standards and objectives for yourself. And yeah, absolutely. I think a sort of digital detox is a good idea. If you could find time once or twice a year or once a quarter, go away, connect with people in reality. Also, you know, have hobbies and interests that you enjoy outside of the digital sphere. That's all a good thing. It's not to say that, you know, being online, these platforms is not what you should be doing or is dangerous or risky, you know, just be aware of how they operate and then, you know, find a balance for that in the rest of your life outside of digital platforms. Makes sense. Kind of going back to your point about our need for social approval as the social creatures that we are, I think there's this tendency to sometimes internalize the feedback that we get, but I sort of like the advice that Brene Brown gave in one of her TED Talks, The Power of Vulnerability, where she kind of says that don't concern yourself with the opinions of people who are not on the battlefield, meaning that take advice as it comes your way, but don't worry about people who are saying things, but don't necessarily also put themselves out there, who don't also open themselves to criticism because they don't know what it's like to do that. So I guess that's kind of a useful framework to operate under just as far as like, what do I listen to? Because there is a lot of noise. There is a lot of trolling. There's a lot of unconstructive yeah. criticism. Some artists and creators like Chloe and Halle, for example, they don't read their comments at all. And this is something that their mentor Beyonce told them. She was just like, don't read the comments. Just don't read any of it. Just avoid it altogether. So I guess it depends from person to person, like what approach works yeah. for you? Do you just like yeah. try to filter out the good from the bad? Do you ignore everything altogether? Just stay focused on your craft? I guess it depends. Yeah, for me, the most common source of feedback I get is people asking questions on my content on LinkedIn, right? And so I started posting early 2021. That was really when I got serious about writing on a regular basis. And it was terrifying at first, right? To what am I going to write about? What are people going to say? Am I going to get canceled? Are people going to disagree with me? Am I wrong? Right? And that maybe never goes away. Like there's still an element of that that's probably healthy, making sure you're self-aware and, and questioning and thinking about the things you're posting. But it's also been an incredible exercise in vulnerability, making yourself resilient, right? Overcoming that fear to publish and share with others. And, you know, sometimes I get really useful questions and feedback that help me reconsider, strengthen, reevaluate my own beliefs. There are values, right? So if we think about a framework of like, there are values and things that I hold principles that are very dear, and I'm not going to necessarily change the way I think or operate in those core principles that define who I am and how I operate. But other times I just have opinions, right? It's like, you know, it's not the end of the world what I think about Twitter versus what you think about the future of Twitter. And someone might have a good thought that forces me to rethink my position on something. It's like, great, you know, we both learn from that. So I admit to people, I'm not going to always get it right. And the fact that we have this dialogue and we're questioning and seeking the truth together helps me be a better thinker. It's made me a better leader, et cetera. So, you know, I think that comes back to our earlier discussion of why it's important to be a creator. And at least what works for me is 
just being open to the feedback and acknowledging that I'm not going to agree with everybody, but sometimes they might have something useful to say. But I'm curious, you know, you operate in a similar space. What is your approach? So I actually had done an episode about how to have productive disagreements a while ago. And I bring this up because you're talking about core beliefs and there is this thing called moral foundations theory. And it was social psychologist Jonathan Haidt. He said that we humans across cultures have a common core of ethical beliefs upon which we operate, but the way that we express those values can differ. And that's where you kind of start to see political divides because the universal moral foundations, according to him, are one, harm and care, two, fairness, reciprocity, three, in-group loyalty, four, authority, respect, and five, purity, sanctity. And it's the relative value that you assign these foundations that kind of informs your political leanings, whether you identify as liberal, conservative, libertarian, something in between. And it seems that, you know, liberals, they place a much higher value on harm and fairness. And then conservatives tend to place a higher value on in-group authority purity. So I think the thing that kind of helps me navigate is kind of figuring out, like, when a person has a certain viewpoint, what is the underlying moral foundation that this is based mm-hmm. on? And I think that kind of helps me to understand where they're coming from a little bit better rather than just being reactionary and feeling like this is wrong. But it's also sort of just mm-hmm. like, well, what is it that you value that makes you believe the things you believe? So I feel like that's yeah. kind of a useful framework for bridging divides. And I feel like sometimes there's this tendency to kind of label people who think differently as other or outsider in some way. That grouping kind of becomes subconscious discrimination over time. But I feel like, you know, if you're more aware of it, hopefully it can prevent it in some respects, but it just does require a lot of awareness. And I think also just surrounding yourself with different opinions and not only associating with people who work in the same industry as you or have the same political leanings as you, which can be difficult. But I feel like, you know, if you try hard enough, you will find people who are amenable to having civil discourse with you. But it's just about continuing to try to have those conversations. Yeah, and keeping an open mind. But coming back to our earlier question about how do we maintain free speech and this idea of a town square, oftentimes the answer, as long as the discourse is healthy, productive, respectful, is more speech, right? Like I benefit from learning from other people who have differing viewpoints than me than living in an echo chamber and constantly having, you know, my news point of view or my beliefs reinforced by other people in a dogmatic way, right? So let's, you know, let's open ourselves up to other ways of thinking and other data points to help inform and evolve our perspectives over time. And I think the other thing is a lot of the time we think that the majority of people think a certain way just because that's the way that things are presented in the media. But the actual thought landscape could look very different. The the viewpoints that people espouse are not necessarily the views that they personally hold. So that just adds a whole nother wrench to the equation, essentially. For sure. The only other thing that I like to remark on about the current moment we live in, right, is how we're moving towards AI-driven content creation, discovery, and personalization, right? So TikTok has pioneered the fact that, okay, we can use big data to understand what type of content you like and serve you up the best of the internet at any moment. And other platforms have recognized how powerful that is and are, you know, moving in that direction. At the same time, we have these technologies like OpenAI that allow us to create, you know, generative AI concept from scratch, which is amazing. And very soon, you know, we'll have AI creating the content and personalizing it to each individual experience. And that's 
like the next frontier. So that's, you know, exciting for me to see how that's going to change the future of social and creator, creator platforms more broadly. Definitely. And I think it's interesting that a lot of the AI art generators, they're not directly mirroring human abilities. Like, for example, if you give some of these generators like Dolly, Midjourney, or Stable Diffusion the prompt of five basketballs, they really struggle with giving you photos that actually have five objects. And they also kind of struggle with things like spatial awareness and some of the things that humans take for granted. Like, we know what it looks like for a glass to be half full like an AI art generator, kind of they struggle with that, with those sorts of prompts. What's interesting is that I think that in a lot of ways, AI is augmenting human capabilities rather than directly replacing them. I'm with you, right? Like these are tools for creatives to harness in the future, just like Photoshop or Figma or Canva have given us, you know, ways to save time and express ourselves in much more collaborative ways. AI will be yet another tool for creators to produce amazing content. And I feel like that is sort of reassuring in some respects, because I think there has been this concern if AI art generators will replace graphic designers, but I sort of feel that it's just another tool in the toolbox to be utilized. I don't think it's gonna be much of a replacement just because that human element is still very much needed and humans can process nuance and we can also incorporate logic with creativity. And I feel like AI, it's very much feeding that creativity arm, but you still sort of need a human to make sense of everything. Let our audience know where they can find you online if they would like to know more about the creator economy and to hear your thoughts and insights into how the landscape is changing. The best place is to follow me on LinkedIn, right? I'm regularly sharing my thoughts and you know news updates, industry trends, just James Creech, right? You can search for me and follow me there. I've also decided to get more active on Twitter. I maybe picked a very weird time to embark on that journey, but I want to give it a shot and really get a chance to experience the platform. So it's James Creech is my Twitter handle. Other than that, you know, I, I have been not as good about publishing new content on my podcast, All Things Video, but I do have some plans to return to that next year. So those are the best places to connect with me. Excitement. Well, we will definitely be looking forward to the reboot because we love a good podcast. <laughs> Thank you so much for for being here and for your time. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to chat with you. Definitely. Please come back again soon. You can find the show notes for this and all other episodes at the Substack URL linked in the show description. You can also review the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, or Podchaser. Thanks so much for tuning in. Until next time. 